Sean. Uh, if you have your Bibles, as he said, we're in Matthew chapter 5, so you should already be there. But just so we kind of maybe know who's all in the room, it is the start of a new series. It's the start of a new year. Uh, by show of hands, how many people here this morning, and you love new stuff. Amazon shows up at your doorstep and you get excited. A new pair of shoes you're still convinced makes you run faster and jump higher. A new journal is amazing. The fact that it's a new year and although we're eight days in or whatever, like, but we haven't severely messed it all up yet. How many of you love new stuff? Show of hands. We can be honest. It's okay. Safe place. All right. How many of you are maybe a little bit more like Give me the old broken in sneakers. I'm rocking Chucks this morning that are like 10 years old, old shoes, comfortable t-shirt, journal that's got coffee stains and the smell of an old book that's been highlighted 19 times. Am I the only one who knows what an old book smells like? Like who loves old stuff? Okay, how many, so we're, we're kind of sort of being honest, which that's church, that's what to be expected. Um, how many of you are like, I kind of like both? Well, this morning, I'm excited for all of us. Like, uh, so we are jumping into a new series. And so if you love new, man, today is your jam. We have a, a brand new series. We're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount, what's often thought of as the most popular, most famous sermon ever preached by King Jesus. And so a, a new sermon series to kick off the new year. But if you love old and you love comfy and you love familiar, this is the most familiar sermon, the most, one of the most familiar passages in the Bible that we're going to spend the next couple of months just unpacking and soaking in. And so whether you love new, whether you love old, this morning and this series is for you. And our normal rhythm, our normal habit and pattern is that we study through books of the Bible. We, we wrapped up Daniel, uh, a study in the book of Daniel just before Advent. And so um, this morning we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5. And so you may be asking, why are we starting a study in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? Why not all the way through Matthew? Well, that's a great question. I'm so glad that you asked that. We have a couple of reasons that really the Lord has just kind of stirred in me that I'm hoping he will do in and through us as we study this sermon. First, our desire is for humble unity. We spent, the mo we spent most of last year journeying through the Old Testament, studying and seeing kind of the big picture of God's plans and God's promise as we did an Old Testament survey series. And then we, we soaked in the book of Daniel and we saw how God was pointing forward to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that all of his plans, all of his promises were going to be fulfilled one day in a Savior, in a Messiah, in a rescuer. And then we just finished our Advent series where we celebrated that the King of Kings came in a humble beginning, was sent to earth from heaven to again rescue us so that you and I could abide, we could remain, we could linger in his presence. And so really, I just want to kind of keep us on the track we've been rowing in. We've been doing all of this work to get to Jesus. Let's now focus our hearts on what does he have to say about his rule and his kingdom? And so we're going to study, hoping just for unity, that we've been on this track, let's stay on this track. Also, though, that it would produce in us a gospel identity, that as we hear his words, as we let Jesus speak for himself, it would produce in us a desire to be obedient, a heart of obedience, that we would realize that when Jesus comes in to our lives, when he invades the darkness that was our souls, it changes who we are and produces a will to follow after him. And we see that's kind of his plea before he launches into his sermon. In Matthew 4, verse 17, as Jesus is declaring his rule and his reign to the world around him, he says that uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, that is a call to action, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. He's calling those who hear him to respond in obedience, to have a total transformation of their mind, that everything about how they used to live should go away and they should start running after him and his kingdom. And so there's this call to a new identity, a call to a new obedience that I want us to be sensitive to as we hear the words of Jesus. But also, I want us to strive to be a church that is growing in our ability to handle biblical truth. So I want us to learn and grow how to read the word of God, how to make healthy and wise observations of the passage, how to apply then what we've read and studied to our lives so that it changes how we live today and determine then through prayer who God is calling us to be as a church or as a family or as an individual, that we would be a people who are marked and changed as we encounter biblical truth And maybe most importantly, for me personally, I pray that our time in the Sermon on the Mount would produce in us a kingdom focus, that we would have the ability to see and to savor, and and I'll try to unpack that here more as we go along, the kingdom of God and that time in this sermon would produce a longing to glorify God, to lift him up and make much of him beyond anything else. And what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 7, after the sermon that we're going to sit in for the next couple of months, at the very end, this is the result of listening to this message. He says, and when Jesus finished saying these things, The crowds were astonished. If you highlight or underline in your Bible, underline that word astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. I would underline that one as well. And not as their scribes. The result of listening to King Jesus preached is they were in awe. They were overwhelmed at his authority. And they wanted to live and respond differently. I am begging the Lord that as we soak in this sermon, not just today, but for the next handful of weeks, that it would produce in us, man, just this deep longing to see God's kingdom here and now and to respond in, Lord, we just want to make much of you. We just want to glorify you. We just want to exalt you above everyone and everything else. And so... How are we going to study this most famous passage in, uh, in the New Testament, possibly in the Bible as a whole? Um, for those of you who are more studious, let me just, can we, can we just nerd out for a little bit here? Can this be a safe space? I want you to know that I'm just not up here making stuff up and, and just creating stuff on the fly. Sometimes I am. You can usually tell that because it's followed by, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That's usually when I'm just making stuff up. But I wanted to share, if you really want to grow, you really want to know, like, where is Nate getting this stuff? Where is this coming from? I have a few trusted resources that I just felt like, Man, I just wanted to share, if you want to take, man, I want to embrace biblical truth. I want to go deeper. These are ones that the Lord is using in me as I study the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm going to start with my favorite, the New American Commentary. So in this book, uh, this is, I use these for almost every sermon series we preach. It's phenomenal. If you geek out on language, you love to know what's the Hebrew, what's the, the Greek, what's the Aramaic, what are the tenses of the verbs that are being used, this is your book. This is your series. It's so very good. If you're kind of a nerd, this is your book. Um, in this book, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, when it comes to how to preach and apply this message, they have 36 different ways that you can approach the Sermon on the Mount. That, that's a lot. So we have to answer the question, how are we going to study? Um, we'll get to that in just a second. If you're like, give me, the, give me the Cliff's Notes. Give me the high level, main idea. I don't got time for Greek. I don't want to parse any verbs. Don't, I don't got time for that. I got a full-time job, Nate. Come on, just help me grow. I got you. 
So the Christ-centered exposition is a newer commentary series. It gives you the bullet points. It gives you some application questions. It gives you some small group questions. It's phenomenal. Uh, shameless name drop. The authors of this series is David Platt. Uh, went to class with him. Danny Aiken was the president of my seminary that I went to. And Tony Morita was my preaching professor. Um, and so I could tell you, I know these guys. That's, I actually feel bad for saying that in first service. Like, they wouldn't know me, but, um, but I... I I know them, like, I don't know, it's cool. I've been in Danny Aiken's house, that's kind of cool. Um, and then uh, Richard Rohr, in seminary worlds, that was a funny joke, that was like, people be in awe of that. Um, Richard Rohr, this is a new book that I've just discovered, it's called Jesus's Alternative Plan. He is a Franciscan priest, which just means he's a cool party guy to hang out with. Uh, but his view on the kingdom of God, as I'm reading this book, is incredible, um, this is not a commentary. It's more just kind of like a book that you would read throughout the week. It's fantastic. I am loving this book. Um, but why do I share all that with you? One, I'm not just making stuff up. This is stuff that we've, I've sifted. This is stuff that we're, we're soaking in and studying to try to grow us as followers of Jesus. But I do want to acknowledge when it comes to how to study the Sermon on the Mount, there are lots of options. There are lots of ways that you can approach this pas these passages. One, we could just pull out principles and be challenged to be obedient. When we get to places like anger and lust and treasures of this world, we can just pull out the principles and say, let's apply those. Let's be more obedient. Let's strive to live countercultural lives. And that has been done. That is an incredibly uh, popular way to approach this passage. And to some degree, we will do that. But that is, that is one approach. The other way that, one of the other ways that we could preach through this Sermon on the Mount is we could examine how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things that he's going to lay out for us. And we could just embrace grace. As we look at Jesus raising the bar, we could go, thank God for Jesus. And yes and amen, he is the fulfillment of everything we're going to preach through. A danger that I have in us approaching it through that way, though, is we would do what Bonhoeffer says is cheapening grace, where we would so water down our obedience, where we would say, God's got it, it was all accomplished in Jesus, so we don't have to strive to live obedient lives because Jesus did it all, we're good. And so yes and amen, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we're going to read this morning and for the next handful of weeks, but I want us to be, be aware that there is a danger if we just discount some of the calls of how to live in this life. Thirdly, we could just soak in the plans and promises of God and marvel at his unchanging purpose. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is scripture being unpacked or deepened or our understanding being expanded. And so we could just really marvel at, man, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we could be in awe of who he is. And that would be great and that would be wonderful. But for me, here's my hope. That as we walk through this sermon, as we soak in the words of Jesus, that we would strive to see and to savor the already but not yet of his kingdom, of his rule and reign. And so you might go, Nate, what in the world is the already but not yet? Your questions are so on point. You notice how I already, they're like right up there, like we are mind melded right now. Um, that might sound to you like a stranger things, like the upside down. And I don't fully know what that is because that show is way too scary for me. Um, but it's, it, I know the upside down has something to do with like an alternate reality that sometimes invades this reality. And somehow like they cross something with like Christmas lights. And I don't know, I had to bail on the show way too quick. We watched the new Puss in Boots movie the other night and it was almost too scary for me. Like I am, I, I can't do it. I just, I get nightmares way too easily. Um, that has nothing to do with anything. Back on track, already but not yet. Uh, the upside down is this alternate reality that sometimes invades this place. In a lot of ways, Jesus came, and when he says in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is introducing a very similar concept. I think Stranger Things is boosting somewhat from Jesus. And if you come up to me afterwards and you're like, you're not right, that's not the upside down, you're right, I don't know, I'm making stuff up. Um, but 
Jesus comes and he proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is here, yet he's also going to draw us forward to an anticipated day and reality. And so we get to experience some of God's glory, God's beauty, God's grace, God's plans, God's splendor here and now, but we also anxiously, eagerly await what is to come. That is the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. And so how do we experience the already? These are the moments that you and I have had, whether you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years or four minutes, or you are like, no, I'm just here checking this out. I don't even know if I, 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 I'm I'm not sure I bought into this whole Jesus thing yet. Regardless of where you're at this morning, you have tasted and experienced the already of God's kingdom. These are the moments that you just don't want to rush past. You would like to sit in those, those moments that you're like, I hope this never ends. Have you ever had a really good hug with a close family, with a relative or a friend? Or you're just like, I hope this doesn't end. Have you ever enjoyed a good steak or a great cup of coffee? You're like, man, I hope this never goes away. It's so good. That is you experiencing some of the already of the kingdom of God. If you've ever marveled on a summer evening at the beauty of a sunset behind our our rocky mountains right here, as it feels like the sky comes alive with colors. Think about God for, he didn't have to do that. How does the beauty of a sunset change anything? God does that to show off and to give us an experience of the beauty and splendor of his kingdom. That those moments that you don't want to move beyond, that is a taste of the kingdom of God. But we also have some not yet moments. We also have these moments where we see and savor things that, man, they're just, they hurt. We would like to get past them as quickly as possible. That in God's grace, in God's kindness, is the beauty of the not yet reality of his kingdom. When you are going through hard things, painful things, when the job doesn't go the way that you anticipated, when that fight with your spouse has caused you to have to sleep in different spaces, when you have this relational tension between you and your kids or you and your your family of origin, and it just feels like, I don't know if I can make it another day. Those hardships and suffering is a beauty and a grace from God that for us creates a, this isn't all that there is. There is a not yet to the kingdom that we are anxiously awaiting something else. And so what is the purpose of the already but not yet perspective of the kingdom? Well, for those who are far from God, these moments, whether beautiful and a decent, awesome, great steak or a really good, like deep laugh until you cry with the family members, that is meant to woo you to the Lord. His purpose in that moment is, would you taste and see and allow that to, to, to bring to question, is there more beyond just this really good dinner, beyond just this really beautiful moment? Is there something else here? Those are meant to draw you to the Lord. But for those of us who are following Jesus, who would say, yes, I am a son or a daughter adopted by the king, both the already and the not yet, the hard parts that leave us frustrated, disappointed. When you've had to stop at the same red light five times in a row, and now you're going to be late for work, and you are like clawing your nails into the steering wheel and unbelievably frustrated, and saying those not good out loud words. I know you don't say them at church, you just say them in your car when you're by yourself. Those moments are meant to elevate our worship and glory of the Lord that it is to produce in us a praise God that there's more than just this. Does it mean it's not hard? Does it mean it's not frustrating? Does it mean it's not stressful or anxiety producing? Absolutely not. But it doesn't stop 
on the frustrating moment. For the believer, a great stake doesn't stop at the stake. It rolls up to, God, thank you for making cow taste delicious. That is the purpose of the already and not yet. It is to enhance our worship of the king. And so what do we need to know before we dive in? So we know why we're doing it. We know how we're going to study. We're going to study to see and savor the kingdom of the already, but not yet. What is some important background stuff that we need to understand before diving in? First off, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience that is desperate for a new authority figure. They're desperate for a new king, a new kingdom. They are eager to see something changed and transformed. And so he wants the Jewish people to understand um, that they are to see and savor God's word, God's plans, and God's son in Jesus. That's why as you read through the book of Matthew, you will see a lot of Old Testament quotes being fulfilled, a lot of pulling from the Hebrew language to, uh, to show how God's word is being fulfilled, God's plans are moving forward, and ultimately fulfilled in God's son, Jesus. And so Matthew is a man who is dedicated to the biblical truth and authority that God's plans and promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Um, I do think it's helpful just to remember this is a uh, probably the most popular and the more I've thought about it, misunderstood may not be the right word, but misapplied perhaps passage in the Bible or in the New Testament that we, as we journey through this, my guess would be you will come across a passage and you'll go, I've seen that on a coffee cup. My grandma had that on an Afghan thing that she knitted and hung on her wall. And it doesn't mean that. It is very easy to rip some of these verses out of context and just apply them. And some of you, as we walk through this, you may have had these verses weaponized against you in previous churches. You may have had certain parts here pointed at you and it has produced pain and distrust. But what we need to understand is this sermon is not a list of rules and regulations. It's not just Jesus giving us a bunch of more law. That's not what Jesus is up to here. However, it's also not something old that we can dismiss. We can't just so easily go, oh, it was fulfilled in Jesus, let's not worry about it anymore. There's a tension that we need to try to figure out how to walk in. And so for me, for you, for us, if we can savor this sermon, if we can enjoy, think about what it feels like to enjoy a good, uh, like think about the best dining experience you've ever had. And the, the best dinner I ever had was at a restaurant in Tampa. They brought out the steak and they brought out a potato and they brought out cooked baby carrot things. And cooked carrots are trash. They're horrible until this restaurant did it. The fact that like 15 years later, I remember the cooked baby carrots. That's how good this dinner was. And I saw it and I, I just, I caught up all the aromas. I saw the beauty on the plate and I was like, I want to dig in. I hope that guy prays quick because that's steak. And, and then I tasted the carrots and for real, the carrots were the best. If you can make carrots the best part of anything, holy cow, you got magic in your, in your fingers. But, um, but when we savor things, it's us taking action. I want us to savor and enjoy and marvel and respond to this sermon. And if we do, chances are you're going to be convicted, you're going to be challenged, and ultimately we're going to be changed to be more like Jesus. And so here's how we're going to go through this. I know all of that was my intro. Sorry, I got you. We, we went super long in first service, and now there's no other service coming. So, <laughs> good job coming to second service. Um, but you'll notice on your note sheet, if you've been around Redemption for a while, we typically, on our handouts, on our note sheet, we'll give you the main idea. We'll give you the points that we're going to walk through. Um, if I'm the one preaching, they're all going to start with the same letter so that I can remember them, or because I'm spirit-led, one of the two. Um, and then maybe some discussion questions or some things to think about at the end. You'll notice on your note sheet this morning, it's mainly empty. That is by 
design. My hope, again, let's go back to why we're doing this, is that we would grow in our ability to observe and apply the word of God for ourselves. This time together would be an equipping. You are growing in how to handle the word of God so that you can go home and feast on it for yourself. And so as we walk through the Beatitudes here this morning, I'm gonna give us just a taste of all that is in these first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. I fully believe we could take three months and do one beatitude a week, and there's an entire sermon in each verse. There's so much here. In other words, I'm leaving a lot of meat on the bone this morning, and that's by design. I want you, after just we walk through this a little bit this morning, I want you to go home and dig in and make observations, draw out applications for your Self. And so even as we read through them this morning, if something jumps out at you and you're like, wow, Nate didn't even hit that, my, my belief, that's the Lord speaking to you. That's his spirit prompting you to press in, to dig deeper, to make changes in line with his word. And so we by no means are going to wring this out this morning. But here's, here's what I mean when I say observations. It's simply what we see in the word of God. And so we're going to read a verse here in a minute. And I'm just going to point out, this is something that's in the passage. It is just, it's just there. These are observations that we journal or we write down or we highlight or we underline. It's stuff that's happening in the passage. And then the application is how are we going to save it? What are we going to do with what we just saw? How are we going to put this in to practice? How are we going to be changed and live differently? How does this make a difference in today. And so we're just going to walk through, and each verse, I'm going to make one observation and one application um, this morning. So let's, let's go. Verse 1, saying, uh, Matthew tells us, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This can easily feel like what unfortunately can be called like a throwaway verse. Like, oh, there's nothing really there. We're just getting to the good stuff in verses uh, two and three. And I would disagree strongly that what we see, an observation we could make here, is that Jesus moved slow enough to notice people. He slowed down and saw the crowds. He wasn't living life at such a frantic pace that he was unaware of the crowds. He sees the crowds. And so for me, an application that I would ask myself as I'm studying this passage and as I'm walking through and I notice that is, man, am I living life at such a pace that I can see the people around me? First and foremost, am I too busy that I can't see Jesus? That's question number one. That's application point. If you're too busy for Jesus, that's way too busy. Stuff needs to get crossed out of your calendar right now. But man, if you're living at such a dead sprint pace that you can't see those around you, see the needs. Jesus sees the hunger and the needs of the crowd. And he's able to say, you know what? I'll be here for you. Are we living life at such a pace that we can see the people around us just like Jesus? Verse two says, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Feels like there's nothing there, right? Whatever, get to the blessing part. Let's move on. But let's not move too quickly past this. Here would be an observation that would make it into my journal. What we see in this moment is a God who speaks to his creation. This is Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that he he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in this moment, the same God who in Genesis 1 and 2 spoke creation into existence sits down in a position of authority on the side of a mountain and begins to speak. He opens up his mouth. And so for me, I would want to marvel and savor the fact that God's word is being declared, that we have a God who speaks. That's amazing. I wouldn't want to move too quickly past that, that Jesus, the God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, opens up his mouth and speaks. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just real quick, just this will help me know who's like grew up in church. When Sean read it earlier and when I just said blessed, does anybody in your brain go, no, it's blessed? Anybody? Yeah, it's hard. I don't know why we do that. It's, it's weird that when you come to these verses, you say blessed. Um, but it, it, everywhere else, it's blessed. That has nothing to do with anything. Um, but blessed are the poor in spirit. It is a spiritual poverty, a deep need that we have, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. An observation that I would draw out from this is that Jesus is reminding the crowd of the not yet that they're living for. That though you feel like, man, I, have, I owe a debt that I can't pay, the spiritual poverty that there is an inheritance coming. There is a, a kingdom reward waiting for them. And Jesus is saying, you are blessed. That is happy. That is fortunate. That is celebrated, depending on how you want to interpret this word and how it's been used in different places. That it, it really is best for you if you recognize, I owe more than I can pay. That I am deeply in debt. It's only when we recognize that need and that pushes our eyes to the not yet of the kingdom that he is going to give those who are spiritually poor a kingdom reward. There is a not yet to Jesus's message all throughout the Beatitudes. And so for us, we can savor the already but not yet moments in our lives where we recognize, Jesus, we desperately need you. In the moment here and now where you feel like, man, the water's above my head, that is a moment to worship our God who's saying, you can't because I already did. It is in those moments where we feel spiritually bankrupt that Jesus can shine the brightest. And so let's not run from those moments. Let's sit, let's worship, let's reflect on those moments where it feels like, man, I can't make it another day where we feel poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, it's there that I begin my work. Verse four, it says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Mourning here is, is a deep sense of grief and brokenness. And so an observation we can make here is that when G we see Jesus speak of the comfort that can come through brokenness. I love that Jesus doesn't condemn the fact that they're looking for comfort, but rather he gives a pathway. He's saying it's through your emotions, through experiencing the reality and the gravity of sin and its far-reaching implications, that that's where you find comfort. It's only when you see your need and understand your brokenness and you're moved emotionally that Jesus can then enter in and be a comfort. We have a God who wants to comfort us, but that leads us to say, man, we really need to like embrace our emotions. God didn't make you a robot. You have thoughts and feelings. You were created in the image of God, and part of that image is your emotions. I do have a concern that we live in a day and age that wants to either be ruled completely by our emotions or reject the fact that we feel anything and just go completely numb to all emotions. And Jesus here is saying, no, like I've given you those emotions. Don't run from them. Don't numb them. Don't reject them. But instead, let me enter in and be a comfort. Be broken by the sin in your life. Be broken by the sin in our city, by the sin in our world. Let that move you emotionally and then take that to Jesus. Allow him to comfort those feelings you have. Verse five, says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. My guess would be you weren't texting your buddies this week going, dude, you're so meek. Like that's not a word we use a lot, um, but here's what meek doesn't mean. This is not the doormat. This is not the pushover or the wallflower that is easily manipulated. This isn't the perpetual people pleaser or the person who's codependent, who's striving to keep everybody at bay. That is not what it means to be meek. I think Jesus here is a great example throughout his life and ministry of what it means to be meek. He is power on display, yet reserved and self-control. He is gentle and humble. He chooses to not be aggressive, though he could be. That's what it means to be meek. And so Jesus here says, blessed are those 
who decide, I'm not going to go to war right now. I'm going to lay my life down to lift others up. I'm going to be gentle instead of being stern or angry or combative. And so an observation we have is that we see the not yet promise of the earth that one day those who choose self-control and to restrain, you're going to inherit the earth. And so what would be an application I would ask myself from this verse, from this observation is, man, I would want to spend some time reflecting on who God has put in my story that has operated and displayed what it means to be meek. Who are the men, who are the women that God has used to show me this? And how did that change me? How did that inspire me? How did that challenge me to live differently, to respond differently, to think differently? God uses us in each other's lives. We need community. And God will use others who are strong maybe in this area to say, this is what I'm talking about. So who are the people that have been meek in your life? And what can you learn from them? Verse 6. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus here doesn't tell us it's wrong to be hungry and thirsty. He acknowledges that you're going to want to satisfy yourself somehow. You're going to have desires. You're going to pursue satisfaction. And so maybe it's helpful. Let's, let's stay with some, some food analogies. I clearly didn't eat enough supper last night. Um, so think about the last time you had a satisfying meal. I'm not saying Thanksgiving, where at the end you had just partaken in gluttony and you're fixing to slip into your carb coma and you need to go put on your stretchy pants. That's not, that's not the satisfaction I'm talking about. Like where you finish the meal and you're like, there's nothing I would change about that. This was way easier in the first service because my wife wasn't sitting right there. But earlier this week, my wife made dinner for us. My wife doesn't have to cook a whole lot because I love to cook, but we're trying to like balance some workload. And so she started like, hey, I'm going to make this and I'm going to own dinner this one night. And it's been a huge blessing. It's been awesome. But earlier this week, she said, hey, I'm going to make dinner and I'm going to make fish. And you know, you know how some food sounds fantastic? Like pizza sounds great. Wings sound fantastic. Nachos sound amazing all the time. Nobody ever wants fish. Fish never sounds good unless it's in like a stick form or deep fried next to some chips. Nobody ever wants fish. And so like a loving husband, I started to mock her and said, fish. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, all right, well, after she makes her fish, I'm going to eat some nachos. And so she painstakingly made fish and broccoli and quinoa. Woohoo! Who's excited for dinner at the Tyler's? <laughs> okay, major, you would raise your hand. Um, so she made it and she sat it down. And she labored over it and she sat it down in front of me and it was amazing. She got the right amount of lemon and capers and garlic. She made quinoa taste good. Like, my wife's got game. Like, it was so good. The outside of the fish was like kind of crispy, but the inside was still like whatever. The, the M word that I don't like, uh, it, it starts with M and ends in oist. Oh, that word's horrible. It was so good. It was fantastic. And I ended the meal going, there's nothing I would have changed about that. As she was serving me my plate, I went, there's a Thai chili sauce in my refrigerator that I might need to get and squeeze and put on all of it to mask the flavor of fish. And it was great. I was satisfied. There was nothing I would have changed in that meal. Jesus here is saying, you are blessed when you hunger and thirst for the right things, my righteousness, and you get to the end and you're like, there's nothing I would add. And so what's an observation we can make? Jesus acknowledges you're searching for satisfaction. We're all searching for that there's nothing else I would do. There's nothing else I would change. And so this week, I would challenge us to take a few moments and be still before the Lord and glorify him, worship him, 
for those places where he is giving you a glimpse of the already of his kingdom. In that moment, when my wife made the fantastic fish and broccoli dish, like it would be sad if that's where it stopped, was just, oh, it's a great dinner. But that great dinner made me grateful for my wife, which then made me grateful to God for blessing me with a wife who will let me say stories like this from stage, and we won't go home and have any problems. Like it gets, Ultimately, it gets to, God, you're awesome. This week, as we strive to hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness and seek satisfaction, I want to encourage us, pause and find those moments where he's giving you an appetizer of that. And just allow that to make you more hungry for him, more thirsty for him. Reflect on those places that God gives you grace in the already. Verse 7, I really have to hurry. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That is compassion and forgiveness when he says mercy, merciful. So what we see Jesus do here is commend those who are giving away mercy, giving away forgiveness and compassion towards those around them. And he's saying, basically here he's saying, you get what you give. So if you extend mercy, if you extend forgiveness and compassion to others, you're going to receive it in return. And so we can this week savor the mercy that we have experienced. My my application for us is to sit with and think about how much you have been forgiven, how much compassion has been shown to you, and that will help you have mercy on others and I am at that right age where it is almost impossible for me to say the phrase, have mercy, and not hear Uncle Jesse's voice from Full House in my head. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't, just watch Full House. Um, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, if you underline They get to see God. There would have been such an anticipation in the original audience around that idea. This is something biblical characters have longed for, to get to see God. Jesus here is making this huge statement, but it starts with a purity in your heart. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that our motives matter. An observation that I would have from this beatitude is that the why behind what I do matters. That your motivations matter. And so for me, I would would ask us to sit with the invitation that Jesus didn't save you to give you a bunch of rules, but rather invite you into a relationship where you are seen and get to see God. This is so much more beautiful, so much more deep and amazing when we are able to say, God, would you sift my heart and show me why I do the things I do? Jesus isn't just concerned with the outward actions. He's concerned with your heart. And when you're pure in heart, he's saying, you get to see me. Verse 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of of God. We see here that um, Jesus is promising a new identity for those who are striving to make peace. Much like meek, this isn't a pushover, this isn't a wallflower, this isn't a doormat, this isn't somebody who's codependent, who's keeping people from, um, from feeling pain or hurt. This is somebody who's willing to enter into hard spaces and make and create conversations where peace can be obtained. This is much harder than it sounds. That's why Jesus says, if you're willing to enter into messy situations and strive for peace, I'm gonna give you a new identity. I'm gonna call you a son of God. And so for me, here would be my my ask of you this week. Maybe take a moment and sit with the fact that when Jesus looks at you, he sees so much more than just a follower. He sees a son or a daughter. He didn't invite you just to follow. He invited you to be family. That's the call from our God and King. We get to experience some of it already, most of it not yet. But let's go on. Verse 10. We're going to get a little bit of a shift here. He says, Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We get a shift now, not from what we do, but how what we do is received by the world around us. He's saying there's going to be hardship, there's going to be pain, there's going to be struggle. And so when you are persecuted for righteousness, he says theirs is the kingdom of God. And so there's this shift that that we are going to be received when we live differently, when we live for the already but not yet of the kingdom of God, people are going to struggle with that. We are going to face opposition. And so here's my application, because I'm guessing most of us in this room this, this week did not receive persecution for our faith this week. But this is a much bigger world than Loveland, Colorado, than yours and my tiny little kingdoms. So I'm going to ask us to redeem the internet. And I want you to go and just just Google. I think World Changers is a great website. I'm I'm hoping I'm remembering that one rightly. Um, But look for persecuted groups, Christian groups from around the world. Because while you and I here today most likely have not been persecuted for our faith, we have family members in the family of God who have. And so when we read this verse, for you and I that experience a fair amount of freedom, my challenge is let's be prayerful for those who don't. I literally was listening to a sermon this morning about a pastor at a church who took over being the pastor because the senior pastor was martyred for their faith. And so the, 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 it was just like, okay, next man up. Like, there are those who are suffering and being persecuted for righteousness. And so let's strive this week to just be aware, to be prayerful, to go look and allow the Spirit of God to, to kind of open your eyes to see his kingdom and how it's being opposed to how it's being persecuted. And then verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, highlight circle that my account. This week, if somebody spoke bad about you, if somebody uttered words against you or persecuted you because you were just a jerk, that's not you living out verse 11. If you were just a tool and somebody called you a tool, you were a tool, and that's not you suffering for Jesus. He's saying, on my account, when you are boldly stepping out in faith for Christ and others speak poorly or reject you or lie about you or opportunities are passed over you and you suffer because of Jesus, look at how he tells them to respond. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were Before you, I do want us to notice there's a shift in language here. All throughout the Beatitudes, he's been saying, Blessed are those who do these things. Here it's, Blessed are you. He goes from third person to second person. He's making it more personal. That the already but not yet of the kingdom of God is going to bring hardship and it's going to be close, it's going to be real. And so here would be my application. Here would be my ask. Who is that person in your story that is maybe the furthest from the Lord? Could be a friend, could be a family member, could be a coworker, where you live, work, shop, eat, play. Who's that person that is combative when it comes to things of faith? When it comes to matters of religion, And how can you bless that person? I do think this one takes the most courage. And if you don't know what BLESS stands for, you can go back to our website. We did a whole series on BLESS early in the summer last year. Um, But can you strive to bless that person this week? And so what we've done is just read through them and make one or a few observations and applications from the, and I, I think I said this earlier, I left a lot of meat on that bone. There's many that we didn't get to touch. And so if something is burning inside of you, that's the spirit of God. But as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want us to be determined in our prayer life now. 
I want us to be determined that we are going to, throughout this series, throughout the rest of today, that as you go home and you dwell on these blessings and promises from the Lord, that you would see the kingdom of God and that you would strive to glorify him. And so as we practice the already of the king, already of the kingdom, by coming to the table this morning and celebrating communion, my question for you to mull over is, how is God prompting you to pray? Where is the Lord by his spirit stirring you to act? Stirring you to maybe repent, have a total change of mind, stirring you to be broken by sin or merciful or to hunger after the right things or to recognize your spiritual poverty or just to declare, Jesus, you are king. We have that opportunity here and now this morning. And so I'm going to have the, the praise team come back up. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, I just want to give us a moment We've made a lot of observations and a lot of application. What's the Lord doing in you? I'm just going to let it be still and silent for a moment. And then I'll pray for us and we'll move forward with partaking of communion and singing. Jesus, this morning, I praise you that by your grace, we have the ability to experience some of the wonder, some of the beauty, some of um, the power of your kingdom here and now, because Jesus, you made a way where there was no way. But also, Jesus, I just anticipate the day when life won't be Hard and won't be full of pain and sorrow, struggling and strife, fear and condemnation. God, that there is a not yet kingdom that you are ushering in perfectly. And so, Father, we celebrate that. Jesus, I pray that you would make us a people hungry for more of you, longing to glorify you with every breath we take. God, to make much of Jesus, all that you did in our place for our sin. And so, Lord, as we prepare our hearts and as we come to the table this morning, God, would you just fill our souls with wonder? Would we worship you, Jesus? Would you create in us an appetite that is, Lord, in this moment, would you be more desirable than anything else this world has to offer? And so, Jesus, we praise you for being the God who laid his life down, for being a God who allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, so that we could experience the beauty of your kingdom. Would we celebrate and marvel at that this morning? It is in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so I'd invite you, when, when you're ready, you can make your way to the table. Uh, we've got communion set up on either side. You can take the cracker representing his broken body, the juice representing his shed blood, and let's just remember and commune with the king who came 